Our reading this evening is from letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and that's page 1214 in the Pew Bibles, or 1841 for the large print Bible. James, chapter 2, verse 14. This section is entitled, Faith and Deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Adam, Abraham, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thank you, Martin. Shall we pray before we look at God's word together? Lord, thank you that we can open your word and, Lord, by the power of your spirit, allow it to speak into our lives. Lord, we pray that that be the reality this evening. Lord, that you would speak. And, Lord, you would speak in such a way that changes us. Please, may we have ears to hear and hearts Lord, that are receptive to what you've had, you would have to say to us this evening. So, Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, thank you that we can open your word and, Lord, by the power of your spirit, allow it to speak into our lives. Lord, we pray that that be the reality this evening. Lord, that you would speak. And, Lord, you would speak in such a way that changes us. Please may we have ears to hear and hearts, Lord, that are receptive to what you've had, you would have to say to us this evening. So Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with some mental maths. Okay? I know it's a Sunday evening. I know it's late. I know you're tired, but we're going to go for it anyway. Some mental maths. I'll start with an easy one. Okay? Some audience participation. Mental maths. I used to love mental math in school. 
One plus one equals. Yes, good man. One plus one equals two. Okay, let's take it up a notch. Just a little one, but a notch. Six plus four equals. Lydia? Ten. Yes, good, she's got it. Right, we're going up a few levels here, a few notches. 127 plus 951 equals mental mass. The countdown clock begins. Say it again. 1078. Yes, 1078. Very good. Round of applause. Just a little one. Okay. Let me give you another one. Okay. A mental maths problem that comes from the passage we're going to be looking at this evening. Ready? Listening. Faith plus nothing equals. Nothing. Okay. Faith plus nothing equals nothing. This is the premise in which James is going to unpack, hopefully this evening from his word. And help us understand what it looks like to live a genuine faith. A faith that is alive. A faith that isn't dead. Faith plus nothing equals nothing. You'll see, James is pretty clear in his convictions that it is faith alone that saves. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But that faith is a certain kind of faith. You see, he'd say that there is a type of faith that doesn't save. There is a type of faith that is actually dead. Faith plus nothing equals nothing. There's a type of faith that isn't actually faith at all when it comes down to it. But rather only a faith that produces works is alive. Only a faith that produces works will save. We're carrying our series in the book of James, and so far James is a few times up to this point provided the the listener and the reader um, some tests um, to evaluate where they stand, where their faith is in relation to whether it's alive or whether it's dead. An example of that would be in chapter 1, verses 2 to 13, where he kind of does the test of trials. He presents the reader with trials, and based on their response to those trials, they can kind of gauge as an indicator where their faith is. And again here in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, he presents the reader and us here this evening another test to kind of gauge ourselves by. And it's the test Not of trials, as it was in chapter 1, but of works. Now, we're going to be using that term quite a lot this evening, works, deeds. So, thought it would be helpful just to begin with to kind of define that. What is it that we're actually going to be talking about when this word faith, or when this word works, sorry, or deeds comes up again and again throughout the passage? Well, it's a life of loving God and of loving others. And that's the test that James presents with us this evening. He presents to us the works 
the tests of works and whether we line up with a life of loving God and loving others. It's also helpful to uh, understand that as we come to this passage, who he's writing to, remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, he's speaking to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So his listeners are Jewish people. And they have outwardly identified themselves with the Christian faith. Some more so than others. Hence the test he puts before them so that they can gauge where they stand. And as they are Jewish audience, remember the kind of journey that many of them have come along. A journey of initially being part of the Jewish system. Their faith based on a structure and a system full of rules and regulations. I must do this. I must behave and act in a certain way. And my salvation is based upon what I do. And from being in that standpoint as Jews, many of them have began the journey and been presented with something totally different. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Which hits them with grace and liberation and freedom and joy. Very different to the structure that they've been brought up in. They're no longer presented with a salvation that comes through what they do. But a salvation that comes through what Christ has done. And so they've very much gone from one extreme to the other. And you can see the potential danger in that. They've gone from needing works... To a potential situation where if this gospel of grace is true, then what's the point of works? I'm saved by grace, right? So what's the point of living a life that loves God and loves those around me? Are works necessary at all? So that's the context and that's the people into which James is speaking as we come to chapter 2 verses 14 to 26. Are people who have been on a journey and have potentially gone from one extreme to the other. So why don't we look then, verse 14, have your Bibles open please and we'll begin to see what James has to say to us this evening. Here's what it says, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. So James is really great, isn't he? He gives a practical illustration to kind of help us unpack what he's talking about here. See his question there in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And here's the question. Can such faith save them? That's the question that he poses to his readers. Can a claim of faith, but with no deeds, actually be a saving faith. And then he gives this kind of illustration to outwork it. There's a situation. A fellow Christian. See what it says there? Suppose a brother or a sister. 
So the context is it's a fellow Christian, a fellow brother in Christ, someone from church. And what's their situation? Without clothes and daily food. Now it's not that they have no clothes at all, that they're sitting there naked, but it's that they have come and have come across a time in their lives where they are really struggling. Really, really struggling. They can't get by day to day. They're without food. They've hit rock bottom. They are completely and utterly in trouble. And you see them. You see them in that situation. Really, really struggling. And you say, how you doing? Peace be with you, friend. Peace. Nice sentiment, isn't it? Peace. Start with that. I'll tell you what I'd do if I was in your situation. You know what you should do? You should go and get some food. You look hungry. You look really hungry. Go and get some food. If I was you, I'd put some clothes on. I'd put some clothes on, get some food down you. That'll make you feel better. Yeah? All the best. All the best. See you soon. Hope everything turns out for the best. And you walk off. That's the scenario that James paints for us here. Someone, a brother, not just anyone, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, in desperate need. You claim some big words, but no action follows. Leaving them without the needs that they clearly have. And the question again, what good is it? In other words, what good is this kind of faith? What good is this kind of faith? You call yourself a Christian in verse 14. If someone claims to have faith, they claim to have faith. I have faith. I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I go to church. I claim a faith. But without actions, it's just empty words. A false compassion for the person in need. But even more so, look down in verse 17, what James calls it. Not just empty words, not just false compassion. But in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith that is dead. Nothing plus faith plus nothing equals nothing. Faith plus Nothing is no faith at all. He carries on the argument down in verse 18. And he brings to bear someone who kind of would oppose another question. See what it says? But someone will say, someone will add this to the conversation. James, you have faith. I have deeds. Someone who says that faith and works are two very separate things. You have works, James. I have faith. I trust that my faith will save me. It's good for you. Well done, James. You've got your works, but I've got my faith. Two very separate things. But see how the verse carries on and how James responds to this type of argument, that they are separate things, faith and works. Show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. See what James says? Okay, you got faith, you claim to have a faith. 
That's great. Well done. Show me. Show me. And, and the word show here talks about exhibit, demonstrate, display to me your faith. Show me your faith without deeds. But obviously, it's an impossible thing to do. It's impossible to show your faith without works. How can you verify a faith if it's not visible to see? But see what James does? I'll show you the reality of my faith. By what? By my deeds. Let me put it another way. Got a chair up beside me. And it's almost the situation where James is saying, okay, here's a chair. You believe that this is a chair, right? Looks like a chair. It's got four legs. It's got a back to it. Looks pretty stable. I believe that this is a chair. And I believe that this chair is going to hold me. It's capable of holding my weight. But then just leaving at that and walking off without actually saying, okay, if I believe this is a chair and I believe it's capable of holding me to actually do this. To sit down on the chair displaying that you trust in the ability of the chair to do what you believe it can. You say you believe in the chair will hold you. Well then have a seat, he says to the arguer. I'll show you that I trust the chair by having a seat. And the same is true in this conversation about faith. You say you have a faith, you claim to be a Christian, well then show me. I'll show you my living, genuine faith in Christ by showing you, by sitting on the chair as it were, by showing you my works. Carry on down then to verse 19. He's speaking to the same person. The conversation carries on. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Again, a little bit of sarcasm here. You believe in God. You claim to be a Christian. You believe that God exists. Well done. Nice one. Pat on the back. But I'll go a step further. The demons believe that. But at least they tremble. In other words, you're not even in the same category as the demons with that belief that there is a God. They believe that, but at least they have the sense to tremble. You see, an understanding, an intellectual faith isn't enough. An understanding that there is a God and the things that that God is able to do and what he has done is not enough to save Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is is useless? So James then goes on to give us some examples. Some examples, some biblical examples of people who illustrate the fact that faith plus nothing equals nothing. The first one being Abraham. See what it says in verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called friend. And then jumping down to verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So here James presents to us Abraham and Rahab. Illustrations of his point. Let's start with Abraham. We all know of Abraham and surely so would have the readers here. Remember they're Jewish. This was not a surprising illustration to them. Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, is given some incredible promises by an incredible God that through him, the whole world would be blessed. And it comes to fruition that this promise of blessing is through his people, through a son, Isaac, who's named there in the verses. But then God comes to Abraham and says, see this promise, see this son, Offer it as a sacrifice to me. Offer it as a sacrifice to me. So it would be okay for Abraham to have faith in God's promises. But what did it lead him to do? When God called, he answered. He takes his son up the hill. He binds him. He puts him on the altar. And he's ready to sacrifice as God commands. See what it says in 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And again, the story of Rahab. There she is, a prostitute, a woman alone in a city that is filled with God's enemies. And God comes and promises God's people to take over that whole land. And she hears, she gets wind of this saving God. And she puts her trust in that God's ability to save her. But again, does she just believe this intellectually? No. Because when God's spies come knocking on a door, she acts. And she hides them. And she directs those that are looking for them elsewhere. And again, the same phrase is used in verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different location. The same phrase that is used for Abraham was not our father Abraham considered righteous. And it's not that this phrase considered righteous means that the act of putting Isaac on the altar or hiding the spies made them righteous. Rather, the meaning of the word is that they were proved to be righteous. That their works proved that they were righteous. Not that their righteous works made them righteous, but their works proved that they were already righteous. And again, that phrase, considered righteous, is used in verse 24. 
You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now this verse, on the face of it, can seem very controversial, can't it? It kind of, rightfully so, and most of us maybe raises some alarm bells when we read a verse like this. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Is this not contradictory to what Paul teaches? Doesn't Paul say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith, nothing else? Isn't Paul saying faith and James saying works, aren't they in conflict? Well, actually, the truth of this passage is that that rather than them standing face to face in conflict with each other, they're standing back to back fighting common enemies. In Paul's letter and his defense of this truth, saved by grace alone through faith, Paul is fighting those who want salvation to be by works. And he says, no, it's not by works that you're saved. You're saved by faith. But here James is fighting those people who want salvation, but that it doesn't demand anything. Remember the context we looked at? These Jewish converts... They want salvation, but they've kind of discarded this idea of works. James is fighting that these people, they want salvation, but it doesn't demand anything of their lives. James is saying salvation is only by grace. Sorry, Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James is saying that salvation is only by grace produces works. There's no debate. There's no argument between them. There's no tension. They're just facing the same enemy, but from different defenses. And then finally down in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, faith without works cannot save. In fact, faith without works is dead. James is saying, as he speaks to his listener, the Jewish convert, there are people in your number that claim to be Christians. They're connected to the church. They're active in the church. They believe the right things. If you looked at their Facebook page, they'd have religious YouTube clips. They'd have a favorite preacher. They'd have a favorite author. They look the part, but they don't love God. And that love of God has not led them to love other people around them. Nothing, faith plus nothing, equals nothing. Let me read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who helps unpack this idea a little bit more. Here's what it says. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root, whether it has apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing, and no fruit bearing. But the next year 
and the next that stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it is dead. And you are correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaf could have made it live, but the absence of the leaves prove that it is dead. So too it is with those who say they have faith, but have not works. If he have faith, that life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has a root, but if there is no works, then the inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. You see, works, the works that faith creates is a love for God and a love for those around us. Imperfect, but present. A love for God and a love for those around us. And if there is a genuine faith, a faith that is alive, a faith that is real, it will be evident by the works that it shows. But again, I want to stress that point that this faith, this work, these works that faith creates is a love for God and a love for other people, imperfect as that might be. It's not calling on our lives perfection, but rather progress. As we look at our lives and see where God has taken us from and where he has taken us to, it's not about a journey of perfection. It's about a journey of progress. So what does this have to say to us here this evening as we bring it to a close? Well, for some, it might be hard to hear this. We've come here this evening, maybe banged up. We have faith. We have genuine saving faith. But you know what? We're going through a season in our lives where we don't feel like loving God. And we certainly don't feel like loving those around us. We're going through a season that is hard. But in our depths... We know, we know and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we trust in that. And we pray that God would reignite, reignite a love for him. And as we love God more, as we see our Savior, as we experience and appreciate the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the faith that we have been given, Undeserved as it is, we then begin to outwork that faith, that appreciation, that love to those around us. Not that the works themselves save, but that by being saved, we work. Maybe for some, it's that of a feeling of being exposed. Maybe we've been coming to church for years. We look the part, we sound the part, we know all the lingo. But the truth is, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we don't have a love of God. We never have had a love of God. And that certainly does not work itself to love of other people. But the encouragement for this, this, the encouragement that gives us here this evening is if that's the case, That's a good exposure. 
But as it points us towards our need of Jesus, who, if we put our faith in, will save. So as we finish, maybe it's one of two responses. That of exposure. That as we look at our lives, as we look at our works, as we look at our faith, we see our need of Jesus. Or maybe it's a response of praise. Thanking God for the work he's done in our lives. Thanking God for the faith that he has given us and asking him to help us live out. Both in loving God and loving those around us. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you for your saving power. And Lord, that it's only by grace that we are saved through the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Lord, I pray that for each one here we would have a genuine love for God and that that love would express itself with a genuine love for other people. That our faith would result in works. Lord, I pray that as we look at our lives, for those of us maybe in the room that this has exposed something of pretense or something to that effect, Lord, it would be a good exposure. And Lord, it would be an exposure that leads us to the cross of Christ as well. So Lord, help us this week to live out our faith, to live out who we've been made to be. But Lord, please help us do that. We need your help. So Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.